Hey y'all, this is May. Now I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1930 through 1939. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1934. So grab me some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1934, the cartoon character Donald Duck made his first appearance in Disney's The Wise Little Hen short film. Donald Duck is known for his quick temper, mischievous pranks, and blue sailor outfit. His distinctive voice, created by actor Clarence Nash, was created by forcing air through the inner cheek instead of using the larynx like in typical speech. That same year, the Loch Ness Monster was spotted for the first time with picture evidence, called the Surgeon's Photograph, is the famous picture we can all probably imagine in our minds, was taken by gynecologist Robert Kenneth Wilson. This image is still considered by many as the best proof that Nessie does exist. Another thing that happened in 1934 was a fire used in an attempt to cover up a murder. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Marfa, Texas was established in 1883 as a water stop and freight headquarters for the Galveston, Harrisburg, and San Antonio Railway. At the junction of U.S. Highway 90 and 67 in the northeastern part of the county. The Marfa population continued to grow, and by 1930, the town had 3,909 residents. In the 1940s, the government stationed the Chemical Warfare Brigades in Marfa and constructed a prisoner of war camp nearby. During World War II, Marfa Army Airfield an advanced flight training base was built 10 miles east of town. However, the military installations were closed the next year. That ended a vital economic and cultural influence in the area. Until the 1970s, Marfa was best known for the Marfa lights and the film location for James Dean's final picture, Giant, with Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor. The Marfa lights, or the ghost lights, are a phenomenon in Marfa, Texas. First known sighting was in 1883 by Robert Reed Ellison. It is said the Marfa mystery lights are visible on many clear nights between Marfa and Pasina Pass as one looks toward the Chinati Mountains. The lights may appear in various colors as they move about, split apart, melt together, disappear, and reappear. This description is stated on a plaque at the Marfa Viewing Center that was built in 2003, costing the federal government and the Texas Department of Transportation $720,000.
it is known as one of the oddest roadside monuments in the state. Described as a giant, circular adobe restroom with mounted binoculars and bronzed plaques. Many researchers, Nicentrics, have traveled to Marpa in search of answers for the mysterious lights. Some of their theories try to explain the lights as planes, helicopters, and off-road vehicles dealing with drug and illegal immigrant traffic. Some have speculated that the lights are natural gas or that maybe they're mirages. Explaining the whole, Mitchell Flat is a basin between mountains, hot in the day and cool at night, and that the different layers of air, some denser than others, bend light in strange ways. But many go for electrical explanations, such as St. Elmo's fire, the little flicks of lightning that sometimes pass between a steer's horns during storms, but that usually only lasts for a few seconds. Or that it could be electrical charges that result from earthquakes. But there hasn't been one in the area since 1995. And then there are the stars and planets. One researcher, Hendricks, said Venus puts on a great show some mornings. He hypothesized that ultimately the lights are related to electromagnetic currents that run through the planet's upper layers. However, some of the most thorough research being done lately has come from James Bunnell, a retired aerospace engineer who had witnessed the lights in 2000. After this, he began returning to Marfa with wide-spectrum and infrared cameras and had more sightings. He had set up two cameras on nearby ranches that would take photos when he wasn't there. One, a black-and-white video camera, and the other, a camera that would take an image every few seconds and aimed them away from the Chinantis and US-67. The results were pictures of light shooting into the sky and across the horizon. He was quoted as saying, To see the real Marfa lights, you have to be really lucky. They show infrequently, less than 30 times a year. The best way to see them is to look to the south or southeast, to the right of Goat Mountain. The best time is early in the evening, right after sunset, and early in the morning, right before dawn. He believes that the lights may result from all the high-energy particles, or plasma, that rain down from the inner Van Allen radiation belt. While most are absorbed into the planet, he thinks some may be repelled by the layer of volcanic rock in the Mitchell Flat, which behaves like a magnetic shield. This hot, ionized plasma then shoots around, spitting and recombing and glowing like mad. He is confident there's a natural explanation. In 1971, the town underwent a transformation when Donald Judd, a minimalist artist from New York, moved to Marfa, Texas to have a permanent installation of his art displayed in one of the abandoned Army forts. He started buying up the Army facilities in 1979, and with the help of the New York Dye Art Foundation, formed the Chinati Foundation in 1986, which is a contemporary art museum. 
The collection features permanent installations by Donald Judd, John Chamberlain, and Dan Flavin, among others, and now occupies more than 10 buildings in the town. But that is what the town is up to now. Back in 1934, 60-year-old Riley Robert Smith and 52-year-old Mary Edna Nation Smith were pioneer ranchers in Marfa, Texas, and among the wealthiest families of Culberson County. Riley specialized in the breeding of Highland Hereford cattle, and his herd had the reputation of being among the finest in the Southwest. But on June 2nd, 1934, a fire broke out at the couple's home, and they would not survive the blaze. The remains of Mr. and Mrs. Smith could not be retrieved from the ruins until the next day. Their bodies, including the two skulls, were identified by the jewelry known to be what the couple normally wore. Mary Smith's rings were found on the charred bones of her left hand, and Riley Smith's watch was found in the ashes under his body. Once police saw that the two skulls had been crushed and that there was a great deal of blood around the corral a hundred yards from the house, along with a bloody wheelbarrow, caused the officers to question the story they had been given by the Smith's ranch hand, and only employee of three and a half years, Antonio Carrisco. Here are the multiple stories Antonio told in his interview with police. I left to check on the ranch's water supply and returned to find the house on fire. I drove 20 miles to Van Horn to get help from the sheriff, but returned with Constable H.D. Clark. We arrived to find the charred remains of Mr. and Mrs. Smith in the fire. What about all the blood over by the corral? I had to kill a sick calf a few days before at the corral and then I took the carcass out on the prairie and burned it. That story doesn't really make sense, as we found no evidence of ashes in the area to indicate such a burning had taken place. Coyotes may have eaten the carcass. Antonio, did you kill the Smiths? Ugh, I killed the Smiths. But, I only hit Mr. Smith over the head with a board after he had taken two shots at me during a quarrel about how I was rounding up cattle in a way that didn't suit him. Mr. Smith staggered to the house and fell unconscious. Then Mrs. Smith ran at me with a butcher knife, and so I hit her too. Feeling hungry, I started to cook my supper, where I poured gasoline on the fire in the kitchen stove and accidentally set the house on fire. Throughout the interview turned interrogation, Antonio would change his story again, stating, I struck Mr. Smith with a stick after he became angry because I was not rounding up cattle in the ranch corral the way he liked. He shot at me with a shotgun. After I killed Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith 
came down from the ranch house, as she had witnessed the whole thing, and helped me carry her husband's lifeless body to the house and placed it on a cot in the kitchen. I was so overcome with fear that I took a stick of stove wood from behind the kitchen stove and struck Mrs. Smith on the head. She ran from the kitchen and stumbled through the door of her bedroom. Then I decided to prepare my supper. When I went to pour gasoline on wood in the stove, the fuel exploded. The fire quickly spread and soon the whole house was ablaze. I got in my truck as soon as I saw the house on fire and drove to Fanhorn and reported the fire. It was about 10.30 p.m. Antonio was brought to El Paso after the confession as the police feared mob violence in the small town of Marfa. The officers went on to do further investigation and found a five-gallon oil can near the bodies. In the corral, they found bloodstains including on the wheelbarrow, also on one of the wheelbarrow handles, several strands of human hair were found. Bloodstains were also found on the patio of the farmhouse. There was also evidence that efforts had been made to remove bloodstains from the corral. The sand and blood had been scooped up and hauled away and was found dumped in a ravine several hundred yards from the house. The ranch truck also appeared to be cleaned recently. Also discovered under Mrs. Smith's body was a recently exploded 410 shotgun shell. At Antonio's home, they found a shotgun of that caliber, a rifle, and pistol that appeared to have been shot recently, and that there was fresh stains on the gun that looked to have been made by human blood. A few days later, the investigators learned that Antonio had recently purchased a truck from the Smiths, but had not been keeping up with payments, and Riley Smith even visited Van Horn and obtained several blank notes that he intended to have Antonio sign for the car. Antonio was interviewed in his jail cell as he played poker in an attempt to take his mind off the murders. During this time, he was handed his lunch, consisting of beans, bacon, macaroni, cheese, and gravy. But it was left untouched, as Antonio stated, I am sorry for everything that I have done. It's like something that never happened. I am very, very sad. I have no appetite. Food does not taste good anymore. While awaiting trial, Antonio made his will, leaving everything to his only friend, Deputy Sheriff Casey Shannon. His will said, Should the court see fit to condemn me to death, and when I die for my sins, I want you to have all of my property, including my Ford automobile, saddle, and bridle and my boots and spurs. He then called upon the district attorney and asked him to draw up a formal will and name Deputy Shannon his beneficiary. 
Apparently, Antonio and Shannon knew each other from when they both worked cattle near Marfa 12 years before. And when Antonio was brought to El Paso, Shannon recognized his old friend and was the one Antonio made a full confession to. Antonio Carrasco went on trial in April 1935 for the murder of just Mary Smith. On the stand, he denied killing the Smiths and said he signed his confession statement in the belief that it would help officers catch the people that did the killing. He went on to say that on the night of June 2nd, 1934, he came home to find the Smith Ranch home burning and that he noticed an automobile bearing a Dallas license plate in the vicinity of the Smith's home the day of the occurrence. That car had three people in it. He was found guilty, and after three and a half hours, he was sentenced to death. As Antonio waded through his failed appeals and impending execution date, he found love. This according to an article in the El Paso Herald. It states, Two months before he was set to die, a young, dark, and petite woman named Nestora Prada was arrested for entering the country illegally from Juarez and was put in a cell about 200 feet from Antonio. Prada felt sorry for the man down the corridor who so unflinchingly awaited death. She began to write him notes. Antonio began to reply. At other times, the two would shout greetings to each other. Told to a reporter, Prado explained, I'd learned to love him. He's a real man, brave as a lion. He loves me too, I think. He told me so in a letter. I would marry Tony if I could. But I can only talk to him through the bars. When asked about it, Antonio confirmed he too had affection for Prado. But after two months and nine days in jail, Prado was deported back to Juarez. Twice since then, Prado was given permission by immigration officers to visit Tony in jail. And she was hoping to visit him one more time before he was executed, stating, Oh, I want to see him again before they take him away. I cry when I think about it. Poor Tony. He cried too the last time I saw him. He told me he was innocent. I have to believe him. Because he is my sweetheart. Antonio Carrasco was executed on October 23, 1936. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, mysouthx.com, Texas Monthly, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. There will be no new episode next week. 
as I came across a cult that ended up taking a lot more time to research than I expected. So I will be taking off next week to prepare and we'll be back the week after that. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.